Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Drunken PM Radio. If you found this podcast through projectmanagement.com, it shows up under my blog, The Reluctant Agilist. I'm really excited that you're listening to this because it's something that I've been waiting for a really long time to be able to share. This uh, past spring at the Scrum Gathering, I had a chance to sit down with Jimmy Fosdick. Now, Jimmy is a certified Scrum trainer. He also comes from a very traditional project management background. Jimmy's company is called Fearless Agility, and you can check that out at fearlessagility.com. Fearless Agility on Facebook or Fearless Agility on Twitter. Um, The reason that I wanted to interview Jimmy so badly is because he's, in terms of sort of the agile space, he kind of fits into the, I guess if there was a punk rock classification for a certified scrum trainer, that's totally Jimmy. But he also comes from a very traditional project management background. And I was really excited to get to sit down and talk to him about what that transition from being somebody who was so deep on the kind of waterfall PMP side of the house over to being a scrum trainer who, who kind of early on in scrum got his certification from Ken, um, what that was like for him. And, and what I wasn't expecting, one of the things you'll hear in the interview is that when he's talking about project management, Jimmy's a straight up PM geek and, and he's really able to get into the weeds of that. So it was a blast for me to get to talk to him about this stuff. Um, I hope you'll find the interview valuable and informative. Without further ado, here we go. Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Projects at Work, and I am at the 2017 Scrum Gathering in San Diego, and I'm getting to do an interview I've been wanting to do for a very long time. So Jimmy Fosdick has taken some time out of his afternoon. We're going to talk a little bit about where you come from to where you are now. So how would you describe yourself right now in terms of what you do? And What I've been doing mostly lately has been um, being a certified Scrum trainer. I do a fair amount of public workshops for the certifications. Um, But the more sort of satisfying work is the coaching that I do. So uh, after 10 years of doing this, I've got a lot of people in my network and I I work with Fortune 100 companies to try and do something that's a pretty popular topic right now, apparently, which is Scrum at sort of an enterprise scale. Okay. And so you've been, I mean, you've been a CST for a really long time, right? Uh, I earned my CST in 2008. Okay. Um, after two years of doing some coaching and being mentored by people like Michael James and okay. KMR. All right. And your background, let's talk about that. Uh, my background was kind of funny. Um, undergrad was the best seven and a half years of my life. Uh, and I got an undergraduate degree in mathematics <laughs> because it turns out that music doesn't pay much. Um, then I came to find out that mathematics doesn't really pay much either unless you want to go to more school. But at the time, Silicon Valley was blowing up, and if you were reasonably good at math, you could convince them that you were a computer programmer. So I went into software product development. Um, I didn't enjoy it that much, and I knew I didn't have the passion for it that other people that I saw. Uh, Also, I felt like my social skills were a little bit too good for that uh, field. And I decided maybe project management was a way to uh, have a more glamorous rock star life. Famous last words. Yeah. So, you know, I I got my PMP for the same reason everybody does, which is to get chicks. Um, And then I just worked my way up as a, in project management and sort of business management, got an MBA. And at the end of that life, about uh, 12 years ago, I was running a PMO for a big multinational publishing company. About 80% of the work was very well-defined, good for a PMI process model. But the stuff I really liked, which was product development, um, software product development and other things, 
it never worked. So I sort of discovered Scrum by accident and uh, have spent the last 12 years trying to get better at it and help others. So what, one of the things I like to ask about, especially people with your background, is what that transition was like. Um, from a traditional project manager? Somebody who, yeah, who's gone down the road of like getting that, getting the PP, getting a master's degree in that stuff. I mean, you really have to learn that. Yeah, it was, it was satisfying in some ways, but very painful in other ways. Um, I'm not like I think a lot of people in our community are. I'm not anti-PMI or anti-project management. It is a set of tools that are excellent for certain kinds of work. Um, and so I don't feel like it was wasted. It's just I discovered I don't like the kind of work that it's suitable for, right? So any, if you've seen the old Stacy matrix, um, the kinds of problems that are suitable for that kind of work depend on, you know, math and physics. Um, there's 100% agreement or close to it on what's required, and there's, uh, you know, 100% or close to it certainty that that's not going to change, that those agreements aren't going to change. Well, that kind of work is challenging, and difficult, and that approach I've used successfully on that kind of work, but it's not the kind of work that I was really passionate about. And I also discovered that project management in that context is much more about process and tools and you know bureaucracy, and I cared a lot more about people, and I wanted to sort of change the way people thought and worked and have a better life. Um, and it just seemed like the, the kind of work that Scrum's appropriate for um, would solve both of those issues for me. But it was, it was challenging and painful because I spent a lot of time becoming sort of, you know, a so-called expert in traditional project management. I was heavily involved with PMI. I was a subject matter reviewer for a bunch of stuff and um, piloting new certifications and things. Um, but I just sort of grew beyond that to care more about complex, creative, problem-solving kinds of work. Um, and agile approaches, empirical approaches are better for that. So I, I sort of just had a crisis of faith, struggled through it, um, and then it took a long, long time for me to unpack all of those assumptions and unlearn everything I had previously learned to be able to both do um, Scrum and be agile and to help others. So what advice do you give to people who are, come from like our similar background? When they start, you see that conflict start to rise up, like the ones you get in class and like, let me tell you why this doesn't work, or the ones who say, this is just really fast waterfall. Yeah, I, I usually tell people in all of my workshops and all of the people that I coach that it should feel counterintuitive, awkward, uncomfortable, and maybe a little bit painful because anything that represents real change feels that way. And if it didn't, if it doesn't feel like you're doing anything different, then you're not. Um, and you have to make a decision at some point. Make sure you understand what you're, what you're arguing against before you try to argue for something else, first of all. Uh, and then once you feel like you understand the difference, you have to decide, you know, an agile approach isn't for everyone. It's not for all kinds of work. Um, I really enjoyed um, traditional project management. I just didn't see uh, growth opportunities for me in that area. But I think if it doesn't feel uncomfortable, then you're, you're not really growing or changing or learning. Um, so I'm glad when people ask those kinds of questions. So you just said you have to know what you're arguing against first. And one of the things I find is that if I say, well, who wants to stand up and, and argue for a waterfall? Nobody will stand up. But that doesn't necessarily mean their brains are in a state where the other stuff can go in. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and I think 
a lot of it, it's the same problem whether you're talking about waterfall or whether you're talking about an agile approach, which is people don't go beyond sort of the bullet points. The reason people don't want to try to defend waterfall is because they don't understand the context. Very few people have read the paper that Winston Royce wrote in 1970 from which that terminology came uh, and the history. You know, I could easily argue for the waterfall. If you're dealing with work where you're dealing with math problems or physics problems, or let's even talk about software. You have to think about what software was like in 1970. Machines were talking to machines. Machines are predictable. A defined process model works. The waterfall works. It's why people hold on to it. The problem is the, the role that computers play and that technology plays in our culture has changed so drastically that most often the people that I work with are trying to help computers talk with people and vice versa. And that's a lot scarier proposition. Um, so I think the people that don't want to argue for what they're trying to replace do themselves a disservice because they need to understand why it made sense. It's not just that people are crazy or stupid or don't want to change. It's because the things that we've done and the decisions we made made sense at the time. Yeah. Um, but the world changes faster than people can past a certain age. And I think that's the big struggle. I like the way you described it as a crisis of faith, because to me that's, because everything you study, all that stuff you like, this is what's supposed to happen. And then when it doesn't work, you're like, what the hell? Yeah. To do that yeah, well, and for me. I'm telling them what to do, but they won't do it. You know, I, I, I have pretty profound ADD, which most people think of as being really distractible, but it's actually not that. It's a difficulty shifting focus. So. I have a tendency to get very hyper-focused on things and you know, absorb a whole lot of information and do a lot of personal experiments very quickly. And because my initial years um, in project management, it didn't work the way I thought it should, because on paper, it looks phenomenal. Yeah, right? it's, it's awesome. Formulas, you know, mathematics, there's a prescription, it looks great. I figured we just weren't doing it right. That's the whole reason I went and struggled through the awful trial by fire that is getting a PMP. Uh, and, you know, almost memorizing the PMBOK guide and then still not, it's still not working. So I go and get an MBA and I take every single project management class at my grad school, hoping that at some point, <laughs> if I did work. it enough, it would work. <laughs> and I mean, we're still doing that. We think if a process isn't working, the answer is more process. Ken warned us about that, you know, 15 years ago. So you were just talking about that hyper focus. And one of the things I always talk about in the class is that like you don't need as much discipline to do traditional project management, but you have to have that constant focus and lock be locked in for Scrum to work. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. Um, based on my experiences where traditional project management works, you're dealing with problems that can be solved on paper, that can be solved in the abstract. And so there's a certain amount of like heavy focus up front. That's where you see all the big design work. It's where you see all the big analysis work. And that's some heavy lifting. But once you establish that, it kind of just runs itself. My favorite point uh, in traditional projects was always requirements sign off because I knew the rest of the project, as long as it wasn't software or product development, the rest of the project would basically run itself. And I just had to show people, you know, charts and numbers. And yeah, and this is what you do next. So how do you describe or how would you characterize the difference between a project manager and a scrum master? Because there's all these companies that try to push one into the other. One yeah, switch. well, I think it's, an, it's, an, it's a natural and understandable problem. Anytime you're dealing with something new, you try to map it to previous experience. I did that for years. I didn't really quite understand the difference between 
project manager and some other roles and maybe product owner and scrum master. And I tried to map them and I thought, well, maybe the product owner is like a product manager because I'd done that. But when I really looked at it, I'm like, no, it's a pretty different job. Uh, and I, I thought, well, maybe scrum master and, and project manager, project manager are analogous. Uh, but I knew a lot about at least project manager. And when I looked at scrum master, I thought, no, that's not really it. Um, and I think it was a conversation I had with Ken Schwaber a long time ago, and I asked him why these two, two roles, because I'm just a why person. I'm, I'm not happy with just accepting the rules as they are. I want to know why. And he, what he said was the problem that they were trying to solve, um, and this is to the best of my recollection, so I'm paraphrasing. Um, the problem they were trying to solve was with the software project manager, because you had to have too many disparate skills and there wasn't enough yeah. time and no authority. And so what I tell people is there is no map to where you're going. This is a completely different approach. It's a completely different way of doing work. That was the whole basis of Ken and Jeff's original paper is they, they had this thing that they knew worked. They didn't know exactly why it worked. So they ask, you know, Oganike and Ray, um, and they tell you, well, it's, those are two different models for different kinds of work. And when they went to solve the problem of software project manager, what they sort of decided was, let's have one person who can figure out the what, tease things out of stakeholders like business project managers do. And then the rest of it is really stuff that project managers don't like doing anyway because it's babysitting <laughs> and, and you know watching people and, and managing people. And it, it turns out that educated adults that are paid a lot of money to do complex work don't need managers. Right? Okay. We, we manage children and dogs because they're not smart enough to do what's in their best interest. So they crowdsourced all of that to the Scrum development team. And then, and this is sort of the punchline of it all, they needed somebody to sort of make sure everybody understands the rules of the game. Yeah. And that's it. That's all a Scrum Master does. It's nothing like a project manager, unless okay. you have a very superficial understanding of someone who sort of keeps time boxes and schedules um, meetings, if you still believe that there are meetings in Scrum, which there aren't. So I, I just tell them it, they're, they're not remotely the same thing. It's like, it's like asking what's, what do a plumber and a, and a carpenter have in common? Right. Well, nothing. They're both skilled people. Right. They, they have, have different trade. sets of tools and different objectives. So you just said that there's no meetings. So how do you explain that? Because I always say there's more meetings in Scrum than you'd have in traditional project management. Well, I mean, part of it is a bias I have because I, I was raised by communications professionals and professors, and so I paid more attention than maybe I need to about words. But I've seen the challenge of, you know, when words that should have the same meaning to everybody don't. Meeting is like a agile. very... Like agile. <laughs> which is actually the wrong word. But anyway, um, meeting is an overloaded term, and it's generally pretty pejorative in most workplaces. A meeting makes most people think of a bunch of people sitting in a room, a few people possibly having a productive conversation, um, but talking about doing things, Yeah. right? Um, early on, we sort of struggled with, well, what do we call these touch points in Scrum? Um, things like sprint planning and daily Scrum, and meetings was the first word that was grabbed onto, but most of us didn't like it. And then, I can't remember who it was, it was Mike Cohn or somebody like that, came up with the word ceremonies. That sounded pretty hokey. But if you'll notice, um, for the most part, in the Scrum Guide as of July 2016, it refers to these things as events. And I like that word because okay. an event is an active thing that you participate in. 
and you expect okay. an event to be energizing, you expect it to produce a result. Um, and if you, you know, a lot of people still, I think, haven't quite understood what empirical process control is. And the, the bottom line is it's a way to constantly reflect. And so everybody knows if they've been to a CSM, inspect and adapt, feedback loops. But what people don't realize is those events in Scrum are an intentional implementation of feedback loops. So they're not meetings because you're inspecting something so that you can change it in every single case. Okay. So you said earlier that most of your work right now is scaling related or enterprise related. I, I did say enterprise. I, I make it a point not to say scaling. Okay, um, sorry. But yeah, I do. I work with a lot of enterprise clients who are struggling with trying to do Scrum at a larger than a single or a couple teams kind of a level. Um, what, what I have found in the last probably, my first big enterprise engagement was probably shortly before I got my CST, so probably around 2007, so 10 years ago, Intel, they're just starting to sort of experiment with Scrum. And at the time, I was too fresh and new to know any better, but what it looked to me like was the problem isn't, and Jeff Sutherland said this this morning in his keynote, which I thought was awesome, because it made me feel like maybe I'm not crazy, <laughs> and you know, John the Baptist screaming alone in the wilderness and eating locusts. Um, what it seemed to me was their problem had nothing to do with the size of the organization. It had nothing to do with scale. It had to do with the fact that they couldn't impose the discipline on their development practices, engineering mostly, yeah. that Scrum absolutely requires to be successful. Uh, and nobody's heard that message or, or nobody's given that message because we get fixated on trivial things like velocity or story yeah. points or... Uh, and a lot of that was driven by the explosion of tools um, early on. So it's not, there is no issue of scaling. I have done uh, Scrum and I've helped organizations be agile sort of at all scales. Um, and in fact, in Shanghai at the gathering last, whenever that was, I did a session on the fact that I believe that Scrum is a fractal. It's self-similar. Regardless of the scale that you're looking at, it always looks the same. You need a small group of people making decisions in a tactical way in a short planning horizon. Now, for somebody at the program level, like the people that I worked with um, at N Intel's networking division, that planning horizon is six months. Uh, and they're dealing with, you know, if you want to use the terminology of a backlog and backlog items, a backlog item in their backlog represents the work of, you know, 340 people across multiple tiers of architecture in multiple geographies but it still looks the same and it works the same. Yeah. The biggest problem is that people do not have cross-functional teams, not even one, okay. right? So there's always an integration problem. And Scrum is, is very attractive because it doesn't take much to start doing it. The problem is people aren't willing to listen to what it says. I mean, it's, as Dan Rossthorn has said, it's training wheels to, for agility. Yeah. You're not gonna ever be able to ride in the Tour de France if you keep the training wheels on your tiny little bike, you eventually yeah. have to take them off to be able to do that. You have to add things like extreme programming or the crystal family. You have to add things like agile product design, like Jeff Patton has evangelized. You have to start bringing in lean software development concepts or lean manufacturing concepts. Um, but people never get past that point of just sort of going through the motions. 
And what we have today, you know, probably 10 years down the road since it really exploded, is what I would call cargo cult scrum. Okay. Um, so what... I'm going to include a link to the cargo cult stuff so people can watch the video. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure if other yeah. podcasts had talked about it, but um, it's a good analogy. And it is an important thing for everybody to know. I, I want to ask you one more question. Two more, but this is a more project managing one. People started coaching teams, and then they coach execs now, and the poor PMO is stuck in the middle like a broken shock absorber and doesn't know what to do. What advice do you have for the people that are listening in those PMOs? Because this is going to go up on project work and projectmanagement.com. So in a PMO, what am I? because I'm not getting what I need from the people on the teams, and I still think I'm supposed to give the same stuff upstairs. Yeah, well, so th there's a there's a there's a dual problem there. People at PMOs, it's it's good that you asked me this question now when I'm a little bit older and more mellow. Five years ago, I would have said, <laughs> "Burn the PMO to the I'm ground." Gonna, <laughs> Project have to managers. Put a picture of you in here too, so that people can see you older and mellow. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all <laughs> relative, but inside, I've developed yes. a more Kent Beck sort of a feel than Ken Schwaber. Um, people in the PMO are squeezed. They've never really had in the 25 plus years that I've been involved in this space, any chance of winning. They were basically the ones to blame if things went yeah. wrong, right? When the people in the actual construction part of an organization, the builders, the testers, when things don't go wrong, um, they point at the, the people who are managing the projects and say, I just did what I was told. The people at an, a, a senior level, a senior management level or an executive level, they, of course, can't accept responsibility, most of them, because it's dangerous. Right. Um, and it's very easy to push that down. So you've got people in the PMO who are trapped in the middle. They're given an impossible job with the wrong tools. And then when it fails, and let's recall, since 1994, the Standish Group has said three out of four technology projects fail. Yeah. They're the ones that get blamed for it. And it's, it's, it's tragic. And I've watched lots of people just, you know, people don't stay in that profession very long because of that. And I think they are, you know, sort of scrambling. I know I was for where am I going to go? But I think what we have to ask ourselves is what real value in principle could a PMO offer? A PMO is somebody that is supposed to be an expert on standards, right. tools, techniques, theory, philosophy, right, which is useful. And I think if, if we moved away from this idea of Governance. jealously hanging on to all of these things that we, don't, we know don't work for the kind of work that an awful lot, 60% of PMPs are in the technology fields um, and those traditional approaches don't work, and opened our hearts and minds to, well, what are a set of standards and principles and values that we can embrace and try to promulgate, I think that's where the real value is. I think the problem that we've faced is, you know, you have a lot of people my age and older, um, and the world changes faster than you can at a certain point in your life, and they're still holding on. And I think it's probably going to take a lot of those people, sadly, leaving, yeah. um, the workforce. retiring, leaving the workforce before we can see that battle end, because it's a silly fight. Right. I have a lot of people because I have a PMP, I think I have a lot of people that end up in my workshops 
that are in that boat. Uh, not as many skeptics as I used to have, but still people are like, I don't think I like this. I don't think I fit. Yeah. And my challenge to them is always, there's no project manager in Scrum, but somebody who's a good project manager has mm. valuable skills to contribute. Yeah. And there's you're wide open as to where that might be in an agile organization. So figure out what it is that you love and care about. If you're midstream in your career, which is where most people in a PMO are, you've got another 20 or 30 years of working. Do you want to be the grumpy old person yeah, standing in the front porch yelling at people? <laughs> or do you want to help the next generation of people sort of grow up in this new world? Well, I so, think the second so is much that's more That's the thing I wanted to ask as a follow-up is do you think... I feel like one of the jobs that PMO should serve in a company that's transitioning is worry a little bit less about governance and a lot more about adapting to coping with the change. Because personal level, you know, team level, corporate level, there's pain in every direction going through that change. I agree. And I think, I think it's, the, it's that focus on governance that obscures the view of the world that we live in. We needed governance 30 years ago because we were doing very plan-driven approaches to project management because it made sense for the kind of projects that we did. And the only way um, to make sure that anything that's more of a factory-style approach to working is efficient is through governance. Right. right. And that all comes from Frederick Taylor. But when the world started to change in the 90s, it's less about making sure the machine keeps running and, and tweaking metrics and things, and much more about making sure that the people are inspired and happy uh, and properly motivated. And governance does not motivate people. Governance forces uh, people to comply, but it yeah. does not promote engagement. All right, so I'm adding one question. If you had a time machine and you could go back in time and meet Frederick Taylor right before he started to do, do all that work, would you stop him? Would I stop or him? Or would you just sit him down and be like, listen, dude, what you're doing, not a good thing. No, I wouldn't. Be, well, I mean, except for the parts about sort of this social Darwinism and enlightenment values that factory workers were subhuman uh, because of evolution. Except for that one part, um, <laughs> I would not stop him because what he did was brilliant, innovative, and it's the reason we had an industrial explosion and it's a reason that we are where we are now. We never would have gotten to the information age without the industrial age. Yeah. What I would probably do is go back in time just slightly after Taylor, find H.L. Gantt. I was just say you want to break stop both his hands and make sure he never drew that picture of the <laughs> Gantt chart. Wow. All right, cool. So if people want to learn more about you, how do they do that? Fearlessagility.com. Um, obviously, the Scrum Alliance website if you're looking for a public workshop. Uh, and that's pretty much where to find me or want a thing like this. Cool. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm the only one. Uh, covered in tattoos with acrylic nails and a dress. I think, so. yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think with the tattoos, you weren't really hitting the mark. But I know, it. yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, Jimmy, thanks a lot for doing this. this Absolutely. Awesome. I'm glad we got a chance to do it. Me too. Thanks for listening to the interview. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, it was great to get to sit down with Jimmy. So Jimmy, thank you for taking time out for that. If you want to learn more about Jimmy, again, you can go to fearlessagility.com or fearlessagility on Facebook or fearlessagility on Twitter. Thanks for listening.